Okay, First Peter chapter five, or chapter one is where we are. And by the way, uh, today's Kevin's birthday, so happy birthday, Kevin. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> the awkward applause. I didn't know what to do there. Okay, so First uh, Peter chapter one is where we are. Um, if you've stumbled in on us this morning, we are in part five of a set of sermons through First um, Peter. We're going to be here for several months, so you can dig in and um, sit in it with us for a while. So First Peter chapter 1, you need to be there. Um, you're going to need your Bible opened up before you um, to look at that. If you need a Bible, feel free to grab one of those underneath your seats. When I was a sophomore in um, college at the University of Oklahoma, already salt in the wound for some people in here. That's all I'm saying, right? That's all I'm saying. Okay, so I was a, a sophomore at the University of Oklahoma, and uh, Kind of a last second thing, I got invited into a, a, a road trip to go watch OU play Notre Dame in South Bend. And I was actually invited by KC, one of the staff guys here, that uh, takes credit for the whole thing now, right? And so I was invited into this, this road trip last second. I didn't know anyone going on, on the road trip. I just knew it was a group of guys that KC knew. So I jump in, and in the van are like 12 guys. So I'm thinking, great, this is going to be a great, I mean, we're in, let's do this. And so we had a 15-passenger van. We're going around making up our last little um, couple of pickups. And the last pickup we made, picking up our last person, it was this cute little pretty girl. Her name happened to be Laura, right? And so um, she gets on the, on the van, and I'm pretty sure this was the pilot episode of The Bachelorette, right? So 12 guys, one girl, do the road trip to South Bend. We're back. Two and a half years later, that same pretty little girl, I'm standing at the front of a church, busts through the back doors of a church, and I hear pronounced over us, you are a husband and wife. Yeah, I know, huh? Now, that moment was, was dramatic for me. I mean, if you're married, you know that is a life-altering moment when that pronouncement is made. I mean, th- this is how dramatic it was for me. I had three brothers, so I, I didn't even know anything about girls anyway. But I, I'd just come out of living for three years in a fraternity house with 70 guys. Next week, I'm in an apartment with a girl. I didn't know there was such a thing as clean carpet, right? I didn't know those things. It was a dramatic shift for me in the, in, in the kind of the midst of all that. I'll never forget walking out of that church and God just ringing in my ears that, Rodney, you are now married. You, you've got a new title. You, you've been given a new thing. Like you're a different person right now. You're, you're a husband. And now you're called to live in light of what you now are. Dramatic moment, a life-altering moment of God making me something and then saying, now you live out of that something. Okay, now that is a pale picture of what's happened thus far in 1 Peter. When you think of the first 12 verses of 1 Peter, the first 12, they are all what God has made you, his pronouncement over you. He is the pastor that is saying over you, now this is what, this is what you now are. This is what you, this is what you have. This is what you are because of the gospel. These first 12 verses here. We're in verse 13. That's where we're starting today. You see the, the first word of verse 13? The word therefore? That therefore is pointing back to the first 12 verses of first Peter. See, okay, Peter is about to give us our first command. Our first do this. Now, you've been commanded to do something. You're obligated to do this now. But if you rip this do that or do this that he's about to say, this command, if you rip that out of the context of the therefore, if you get that command out of the context of the content of those first 12 verses, you lose the the possibility of actually living in those commands. If you skip over and look over that therefore, 
You make it impossible to live in the command that, that Peter's about to give you. So, so think back into these first 12 verses. Just start in verse 1 here. The, the God says, I elected you. I chose you. You're mine. Ver, verse 3, he says that I've caused you, according to my great mercy, I've caused you to be born again. I radically re-altered the inside of you. You were sin-centered at your core. Now you're, now you're God-centered at your core. Verse 4, I, he's given us this great inheritance, this indescribable inheritance. Verse 5, that he's not only prepared an inheritance for us, but, but by his power, he's keeping us for that inheritance. Verse 6 and 7, that, that all these trials that we endure while, we're, while we live, all of those are by God's design. Verse 8, 9, um, you see that? Those in there, that? God's given us this inexpressible joy. 10, 11, and 12 that we looked at last week. That God has given us this great salvation. Isn't it amazing if you're a Christian in here that you have been saved? That the angels long to look into it. The prophets long to see this thing. See, if we, if we lose that context, the content of 1 through 12... We absolutely make it impossible to live in the commands of verse 13 and the rest of the book. Okay, now, now listen to uh, Edmund Clowney. He, he wrote a commentary on 1 Peter. Listen to how he describes this. That order is everything. If you lose sight of that order, you make it impossible to live out the Christian life. Here's what he says. The imperatives are, are the commands of the Christian life or Christian living always begin with therefore. Peter does not begin to exhort Christian pilgrims like, to, to do this. He doesn't begin to exhort them until he has celebrated the wonder of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. The indicative, or what God has done, statements of fact about what God has done. These indicatives of these first 12 verses of what God has done for us and in us precedes the imperatives of what we are to do for God, for him. Without the indicative of what God does, the imperative is addressed to a helpless sinner, the victim of his illusions. It becomes, listen to this, a commandment that crushes or that drives to vain and presumptuous efforts. If we lose sight of the context, 1 through 12, these commands of, of verse 13 and on become crushing for us, not a delight for us. If you lose sight of the gospel, all that God has done for you, it makes it impossible to live out the, the, the imperatives, the commands that, that God gives us after that. Okay, so that's why we're stressing this. I just want you to hear this stressed. If you forget who you are and try to live these things out, it's impossible. If you forget what God has done and you try to live these, it's impossible. That order, gospel first, now gospel doing second, is imperative that you get that. Okay, so with that, with that background in, we get our first couple of commands in, in the book. Verse 13. Verse 13 says this, Therefore, the pointing back, in light of what's happened, in light of what God has done for you, in light of all of that, now you, now you can start do, doing this. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Here's the first command. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, here's the second command. You also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, four times in Leviticus, he's quoting this, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Okay, so if you want to take a step back and say, what, what is Peter about here? What, what is he doing in these few verses? Here's the gist of what Peter is after. He is saying, listen, this is a call. In light of what God has done for you, there is a call on your life to be holy, to live holy. That there's a call on your life to live well for God. Do you see this? That, that since you have been born again, your life should boast of that. 
Since you have been saved, your life should, should so, uh, show that. Since you've been redeemed, your life should reflect that. That this is the issue here. He's saying that, that, listen, if you have been saved by God, you're the people of God saved by God, then your lives should be God-reflecting and gospel-displaying. That, that you are called to live holy. That this is, the, this is the command. This is the gist that he's going after, that the angst that he has is as a Christian, there is a call on your life to display God in the way that you live. Holy living. And listen, I think our culture needs to hear this command. I mean, if you're going to just describe the cultural kind of atmosphere of Christianity, I, I think it's probably pretty easy to see that we live in the, the land of easy believism, a, 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 like a, a Christ without a cross, Christianity without a cross, that we have many people who admire Jesus, come to, flood into churches, slap their Bible, amen, love to listen to good preaching, all of that, agree with good preaching. Great, great admirers. Love to flirt with God, but few followers of God. Like we've got a ton of people that proclaim Jesus publicly, but absolutely just malign him privately with their lives. I mean, th- this is our culture. Now listen to Joel B. kind of describe th- this whole issue of, of our culture needing to hear this. He says, there is a simple yet profound word which occurs over 900 times in the Bible. You see it first in Genesis as we are informed of how God created heaven and earth. You see it last in the Bible's final chapter when we are told about God's creation of a new heaven and a new earth. One entire book, the whole book of Leviticus, is devoted to the subject of this word. Yet this word is strangely overlooked today. Though it describes the uniqueness of God and the calling of all of his children, it is largely ignored. This short, awesome word is holy. So I, I think our, our culture needs to hear 1 Peter 1.15. As he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all of your conduct. Like all of your conduct, every part of your life, you live holy. I mean, I think we need to hear that this morning. That God has, if you're a Christian, God has placed this call on your life. To live holy. God reflecting. Gospel displaying lives. Okay, so, so let's, um, let's drill into this. What, what is holiness? We'll, we'll start by defining it. Um, the word holiness is kind of this comprehensive concept of, of what it means to live after the way and will of God. The primary word in the Old Testament for holiness is this word Kadesh. And here's what it means in the Old Testament. It means to cut off or cut loose, to separate something. So, so it's, it's this idea of separating something from evil purposes and devoting it to the purposes of God. This is holiness. To cut off from this and to use it for that. Okay, that, that's what it means. Okay, now let's apply this first to God. Because here's one of the things we learn in this passage is that holiness applies to God. Like, like God, God is a holy God. So, so we learn that there. He says, you're going to be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. So, so we get this picture of, of God being holy. So what does that mean when we apply holiness to God? Um, let me try to unpack this for you. Okay, to, to say, okay, well, first of all, by definition, God is set apart. He is distinct. He is different. So to say that God is holy is almost like saying God is God. Right? And so, so to try to get under the surface of what's happening when we say God is holy, here's what we're saying. That there are some things in the English language that we just can't describe with words. Words just don't wrap around the magnitude of what this thing is. And so when, we're, when the Bible says God is holy, it's like taking a step back and saying, you know the word magnificent? 
it is not adequate to, dis- to, to describe God. So he's, he's holy. He's bigger than, and better than the, the word magnificent. You know the word powerful? It is inadequate to describe the power of God. He is more powerful than the word powerful. You know the word wise? That is inadequate to describe God. We don't have a concept to even think about how wise God really is. To say God is holy is to say that God is, he's beyond description. He's beyond the limits of language. See, what sets sets God apart as God is not the fact that he's wise, that he's powerful, that he's good, that he's beautiful. What sets God apart as God is that he's holy wise. Totally distinct, totally other in his wisdom. Totally other in his power. Totally other in every one of his attributes. He's in a different category. Say, okay, now this is our problem when we think about God. And this is why the people of Israel are constantly rebuked for thinking about God in their own terms. For, for trying to bring God into their own categories. Okay, they're constantly rebuked for that. Here's one of our problems when we think about God. Is we like to fit him into kind of our way of thinking. Like, and however our mind can think, we try to grab God and stick him into those boxes. So as if, for instance... When, when we think of the word wisdom, here's how we think about wisdom and God. We put wisdom on a scale. Here's the dumb people. Here's the wise people, right? One is dumb. Ten is really wise. So our, 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 guy, the, our coworker, that guy's a one. He is way over on that end of the scale. Me, I, I'm a six. You know, I'm not, I'm not dumb, but I'm, not, I'm just a six. But God, he's the ten. Like, he, he's on the top end of the scale. See, when we think about God, we take our kind of framework, and we put God at the top end of our framework. So, so when we think power, here's the weak guy, here's the powerful guy, here I am, and here's God at the top of the scale. But, but here's what holy tells us about God, that he does not fit on your scale. He requires a completely different scale, a completely new scale. You see that? That's what the word holy means when it's applied to God. Listen to A.W. Tozer describe this in the knowledge of the holy. He says this. Quite literally, a new channel must be cut through the desert of our minds to allow the sweet waters of this truth to flow in. We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we're capable of. In other words, putting God at the top end of the scale. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. We know nothing like God. He doesn't fit in any of our categories, he's saying. It, he stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. Holy is the way God is. To be holy, is, uh, to be holy he does not conform to a standard. To be holy means he is a completely different standard. He is the standard. You see what he's saying here? This is why the Bible, Exodus 15, says, Who is like you, O God, among the nations? What what gods are like you? Majestic in holiness. Glorious in your deeds. There's nothing like you. This is why Psalm 77 says, Your way, O God, is holy. There is no God like you. No God like you. There's nothing like you among the nations. See, this is the image of God being holy. That he completely shatters all of our scales. Requires a completely new scale to even think about it. So this is holiness in God. Okay, but this passage also teaches us that holiness applies to human beings. That it's got something to say about holiness in you, holiness in me. Okay, now when the Bible talks about holiness, it's going to tell us in this passage, God is holy, so you be holy. When the Bible talks about holiness, it could talk about it in, in one of three senses. Okay, one is like positional holiness. 
This is what happens when you become a Christian. When God saves you, he makes you perfect. He makes you holy based on the work of Jesus for you. So in his sight now, when he looks at you positionally, he sees Christ in you, not all of your filth and unholiness. Okay, that, that's positional holiness. But then there's kind of this idea of, of progressive holiness or practical holiness. This is the ongoing process once God saves us as, of us conforming more and more to the image of Christ. Us looking more and more like Jesus. Us killing sin in our life. Us living more and more obedient. That's progressive holiness or practical holiness. And then you've got this idea of perfected holiness. That one day God will come back for us or you'll die and you're going to stand in the presence of Jesus. And in that moment, he is going to make you perfect. All of the, all the filth that we have, all, the uncle- all of that stuff, all of it's wiped away and we're made perfect. Okay, now in this passage, what Peter is talking about is this second sense. That God has called you to live your life progressing in holiness. Practically becoming what you positionally are. are. Are you seeing that? It's this call for you to put sin to death in your life. Okay, so, so let me kind of pry into what that means. When, when, when you hear the word holiness, that you are called to be holy, let me give you four or five things that that means. Number one, it means to be fully at the disposal of God. Okay, so if you look in the Old Testament, you're going to see all of these these objects that, that are holy. You're going to see things like, um, it's going to say a tithe is holy. It's going to say that, that linen and oil and pots that are used in the, in the tabernacle and the temple, that they're holy. Okay, now why are those things holy? Here's why they're holy. Because they have been set apart from evil purposes and they have been devoted exclusively to the disposal of God. Okay, now I think about how this applies to your life. To say that you're holy, progressing in holiness, that means that you're being separated from any sort of purposes other than God. That you have separated yourself from over here and you have committed yourself to be at the full disposal of God. Every part of you, every piece of you, every part of your mind, every single part of you at God's disposal. That's what it means to be holy. It reminds me of the story of Elizabeth Elliot. Um, her husband and a few other men were trying to get the gospel into a primitive and violent tribe in Ecuador. And uh, they, they initially made contact. A few days later, the tribe comes back and the tribe spears all five men to death. They bring back the news to Elizabeth. Jim Elliott was one of the, the men killed. They bring back the news to Elizabeth and uh, they say, Elizabeth, we've got terrible news to, to tell you. Your husband died today. And she looked back and said, no, he didn't. And they said, Elizabeth, your husband died today. Looks back, no, he didn't. Elizabeth, your husband died today. And and she looks back and says, I know what you're saying, but he didn't die today. He died when he was 16 years old, knelt down beside his bed and said, God, waste my life on you. That's holiness. At God's full and complete disposal. You belong to him. You're his. His, his wishes are your wishes. When your will, his will cross, your will goes. His will stays. It means to be at God's full disposal. Secondly, it means living with a single passion. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Okay, now when you see the word passions there, I, I think most people, and the NIV actually does this, does this, they just apply the word evil in there. So it's evil passions. But I don't think that's the gist of what Peter is saying. I think the gist of what he's saying there is not evil passions, but inordinate passions, wrong passions. Like, like 
this is what uh, Augustine called disordered loves. That, that we love lesser things too much. I mean, they're good things, they're just lesser things. We love good things too much and the great thing too little. See, that's the problem. See, in our former way of life, in, in our ignorance, we're not seeing God for who he is, so we're loving, we're loving lesser things, even good things too much, and, and, we're, and we're loving the great thing, God, the thing, the ultimate thing in the universe, too little. It's, it's a disordered love. We've got our loves out of whack. We love things that, that shouldn't be in the center too much. Right? You see the picture here. Disordered loves. He's saying that, that your, your passions are disordered, that, that you're loving the wrong thing, that, that the wrong things have made themselves into the middle. Like the place of priority is occupied by the wrong thing. Like you're loving this thing that you shouldn't be loving like that. It's a good thing. You can love that thing, just not in the middle. It's not a middle thing. See, th- this is the idea. It's this disordered love. You've got these inordinate desires, and this is what it means to be holy. It means that every other desire takes second place to God, the central priority. That, that God is really in the middle. That, that money is not in the middle. That a big home is not in the middle. That a car is not in the middle. That, that a hobby is not in the middle. That God is actually in the middle of everything. That you've got one consuming desire, one consuming passion that drives your life. And that one consuming passion is God. That, that he is at the top of that. He's at the center of that. He is all of that. That everything else is left through God. So so God is at the center of everything, one consuming desire. Now, I think this is a question for you. This is what holiness means. Does that describe you? I think that would be a great question maybe to ask in your home group. Like, what sits at the center of everything for you? What is the driving motivator for you? Do you have like this disordered love thing going on? See, holiness means that we have one driving passion, that our passions are not inordinate or out of whack. We don't have disordered loves. We have an ordered love that starts with God, that consumes every other love. Thirdly, holiness means putting sin to death. You see the verse 14? It starts out like this, as obedient children. Okay, now that's, that's a Hebrew idiom. Okay, that, that's a word, that phrase, it, we, the Bible, just, or the, the translators translate that as children. Like, it, it's almost like parent-son type thing here. But the idiom means this, that you're children of obedience. In other words, your life is characterized by obedience. That, that you are an obedient person. So here's the other side of obedience. Obedience means that you are putting all known sin in your life to death. That you don't flirt with it, you don't cuddle with it, you don't coddle with it. You actually try to kill it. You actually try to crucify it. That this is the idea. You're obedient. That, that every part of your life is brought under the submission of God. That you are killing all known sin in your life. I, I love the story of C.S. Lewis. He gives this illustration of a red lizard. Kind of weird, but it's C.S. Lewis-ish. So, so he gives this illustration of a red lizard that is sitting on a guy's shoulder. And the red lizard is this metaphor and this picture of your former manner of life. The old you, the old man, the old woman before Christ saved you. It's been dethroned, but not destroyed. So, so this old, this, this red lizard is sitting on this young man's shoulder and it's whispering all of these seductive lies. Wouldn't it be nice to trade in that wife for an upgrade, right? I mean, pornography, that, wouldn't that be satisfying to you? Anger, wouldn't that just feel so good to, to fly off the handle there? Greed, wouldn't that be so good just to chase after that? It would give you, so it's just whispering these things. And at one point, an, an angel comes to this guy and, and says, I can take that lizard from you if you want. I, I can take it from you. And uh, the guy realizes at that point that, that for that angel to take that lizard means that angel is going to have to destroy, kill that lizard. And so here, here comes the mental 
right, the, the mental war. He starts instantly thinking, well, I mean, that lizard's kind of been an old friend. I mean, everybody's got a red lizard on their shoulder, right? I mean, I, I, what would I do without a red lizard on my shoulder? And then the, the lizard starts whispering. You, you don't, you don't want to kill me. I mean, cage me. Contain me. I mean, you, you can leave me on your shoulders. Don't listen to me. And, and C.S. Lewis says, in that moment is all moments. See, here's a lot of our problems right now, is that we really think that we can contain sin, that we can cage it, leave it on our shoulder, leave it in our life, leave it around us, and it actually won't harm us. And the Bible is says absolutely the opposite of that, that either you are killing your sin or your sin is killing you. Those are the two options. That's the only two for you. Like this morning, you know, that thing that is sitting on your shoulder, just whispering seductively, either you kill it or it's killing you. That's the only two options you have in this. And here's what holiness means. That we allow all sin in our life to be absolutely killed. That we declare war on it with the intent of destroying it. Okay, this is what holiness means. That we don't coddle with these things. That we seek to crucify these things. So it means that we put sin to death. Fourthly, it means a comprehensive change in our conduct. You see verse 15? It says, but as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all of your conduct. To be holy means that you are wholly obedient, fully obedient, completely obedient. That there's not one area of your life that you're not obedient in. That's what it means to be holy. So if there is something in your life this morning that you say, God, you've got it all except this. That is not holiness. Right? That's, that's not how holiness works. See, maybe to put it in, and I heard one pastor illustrate it like this. If I were to come to you today and say, hey, you can stay at my house this weekend. The house is wholly yours. It's all yours. You come in, do whatever you want, but just stay out of that one room in the back. See, if, if I give you an accept, a but this, here's what I'm really conveying to you. The house is really not yours. The house is mine. And you're welcome to come in for a weekend. But at the end of the weekend, you're probably going out and you need to stay out of that room. See, and when we have a accept this to God, this is what we're saying. The house is not yours. God, I don't know who you think you are, but this house is not your house. It's my house. And you can have whatever you want on that side of the house, but this side of the house is mine. See, as long as there is an accept this to God, we are not walking in holiness. Holiness means a comprehensive change. Comprehensive change of, of conduct. In, in all of our conduct. So, so maybe this would be a good question for you. Is there any area of your life where there is an accept this? And accept this, this money. And accept this sort of service. And accept this forgiveness. And accept this person. And accept this. Is there any sort of an accept this in you? And fifthly, and let me just add some gravity to this issue of, of holiness for you. It's a necessity. Look at verse 15 again. But as he who called you is holy, so you be holy. Like it's, a, it's, it's saying that like a must. Like you must be holy. So you called you as holy, so you be holy in all of your conduct. That, that holiness is a necessity in your life. If you're a Christian in here, it is a necessity for you to be holy. Now, okay, so, so I, I want to make, make this clear. When I, so no misunderstandings on this. Holiness does not earn your salvation. Jesus does that for you. So, so we trust in Jesus' work, sinless life, as he lived, substitutional death on the cross, that's who we're trusting in for our salvation. Okay, so, so your good works, your holy living, you striving to be like God, that does not earn you salvation. 
But listen to this. But holiness is the mark that you have been saved. It is one of the primary evidences of your life that you have been changed, that you have been saved, that you have been born again. That this is why in Hebrews, uh, I think it's 14, 12, it says, without holiness, strive for holiness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So this is a mark on your life. If you don't have this mark on your life, you probably shouldn't be too settled into the idea that I'm a Christian. If holiness is not a mark on you, if it's not progressing in you, if it's not after you, then it probably ought to raise an issue of examining that, of, of looking into that. Listen, and we're all at different, like we're all at different stages in it, right? So we're all at different levels. We're all progressing at different, at different speeds. The issue is not perfection. The issue is progression. The issue is you need to be on the move toward God. If you're not on the move toward God, you need to ask serious questions about your heart for God. Do you see that? This is the issue. That this is the mark of a Christian. I love what one author said. Christ comes with a blessing in each hand. Forgiveness in one, holiness in the other. And he never gives either to a person who will not take both. See that? That it's, it's, it's both. It's when God does this, he also does that. When God saves, he also starts making you holy. I, I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He says, if your religion or your version of Christianity, like your version of what's happened to you, right? If your version of religion, if your, if your Christianity doesn't make you holy, then your version of Christianity will damn you. I mean, those are sobering words, aren't they? See, that when God saves, he starts to sanctify. When God saves, he starts to progress us in holiness. Holiness is a necessity in our life. Okay. So with that said, I want to jump back to verse 13, and I, I want to give you a pathway towards holiness. P Peter's going to start in verse 13 by, by giving us some, th this is how you get there. This is how you start moving towards holiness. So look at verse 13 with me. He says this, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Okay, so if we want to be holy, this, this is what it's going to require of us. Here's what it's going to require. Set your hope. That's a command. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is a call to be holy. That's, that's the passage. It's a call to be holy by fixing your hope on Jesus. That, that's the pathway to getting holy. That's how you become holy. By fixing your mind on Jesus. Fixing your hope on Jesus. And listen, your hope what you're hoping in, trusting in, what your faith is in, your hope shapes your life. Your hope shapes your conduct, your living. If right now you are hoping in money, doesn't that shape your life? It does, doesn't it? You start making all of your decisions around money. If your hope is in your family, it shapes your life, doesn't it? All of your decisions are then based around your family. If your hope is in your possessions, then it shapes your life. Everything you do is, is built around your... If, it's, if your hope is in a hobby, everything you do starts being shaped around that hobby. See, what your hope is in, it shapes your conduct. And Peter is saying, if you want holy conduct, here's what it requires for you to set your hope firmly, for you to fix your hope on Jesus. That, that, that it requires that. Single-minded, after Jesus, hope on Jesus, trusting in Jesus. That's what it requires for you to be holy. I, I think what happens to a lot of us is we become hope investors. What does an investor do? 
And an investor loves to diversify, don't they? So, so we're not going to push all of our chips into one bag, kind of one pile. We're going to throw a little over here into this stock. We'll throw a little into that stock, a little into that stock. And, and, and hopefully three out of the five are going to do great for us. Right? So, so if, these, if these crumble over here, we've still got these to lean on. See, and here's what Peter's saying. You can't diversify your hope. See, we love to sprinkle a little bit of hope over here in Jesus, a little bit of hope in our job, a little bit of hope in, in our marriage, a little bit of hope in our kids, a little bit of hope in our health, a little bit of hope into all these things, just banking on some of them being okay for us. And Peter's saying, you can't live like that if you want to be holy. If you want to be holy, it requires you to set your mind, to fix your hope on Jesus. That, that's it, consolidate it. No diversification, all consolidated, simplified down into one thing in Jesus. Now, does that describe you? See, see, when our hope becomes fixed on God, on Jesus, and the grace that will be brought to us, our life starts to bend around that. When we know what's coming, our life starts to bend around, and we start to live in light of that. He's saying, fix your hope on Jesus. And then he gives you two ways to do that. Two ways. You see them here? First two phrases of verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Here's way number one. You prepare your mind for action. Now, if you look, um, if you've got an ESV, if you look down at the bottom of the page, here's what you'll see. A little footnote that says, girding up the loins of your mind. That's, that's what the, the original Greek says. Girding up the loins of your mind. That's a Hebrew idiom. It's, it's something they would know in their culture. We wouldn't have any idea what girding up loins means. Like that, that is not our language, right? And so here's what that means. It's a picture of a man wearing long flowing robes. Now, now robes look great, don't they? I mean, they look wonderful. They, they're dressed well. They're all of that. But you're probably not entering a track meet with a robe on, right? You're not going to run in a robe. A robe's difficult to run. And you've got all these loose things flying around. It's hard to run in a robe. So what they would do if they had to, to do something strenuous, if all of a sudden they had to run across the street, if they had to run at something, towards something, they would grab all the loose ends of that robe, robe, pull them up, and pack them into their belt, where now they had everything kind of girded up, where now they could run. They were prepared to, to do something. This is the picture. Peter is saying, if you want to set your hope on Jesus, if you want to live holy, here's what it means. You've got to pull all the loose ends of your mind up, and you've got to pack it into your belt, into this pursuit of God. You've got to pull all these loose ends of your mind up, pack it into this pursuit of God. This is what you've got to do. Everything's got to be at, there, there can be no loose ends. Everything's got to be directed at, centered at, looking at Jesus. No loose ends, no distraction here. Your, your mind's prepared, your mind's ready. And, and listen, wouldn't we all agree that this is where the battle is? I think it was J. Oswald Sanders that said, the, battle, the battleground, the battlefield for every moral and spiritual battle is found in the mind. That, that before you ever commit an affair, you've got a fantasy of it. You've imagined it. Dreamed about it. See, that, that's the first step in all, all these things. Sin takes root in the heart and in the mind. See, holiness is not first found in your conduct. Holiness is first found in your heart, in, in your mind, what you're thinking about, what you're dreaming about. And let me just maybe even press this one step further. If you want to live holy, it requires you to be a thinker. It requires for you to think. It requires you to use your mind. It requires you to put your mind to the grind, prepared, pushing after, looking at, thinking about Jesus. It, it requires you to do that. You remember Matthew chapter 6? 
Jesus is addressing worry. Do you remember what he says to people? He, he, first of all, he calls people who worry. He says, oh, you have little faith. So, so worry is a faith issue, right? And, but do you remember what he tells them to do? You, you who worry, here's what you need to do. He says, stop and consider the flower of the field. Look at the grass. I tell you that, that Solomon in all of his splendor was not clothed like one of these. This is how I care for grass. Here today, gone tomorrow. Would not much more care for you? He says, stop and consider that. Think about that. You need to let your mind soak in that. He says, look at the birds of the field. They, they don't sow or, or harvest, kind of reap. They don't store in barns. Yet, yet I tell you that I feed them. And if that's how I take care of a bird, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't I much more take care of you, a child of mine? He says, stop and think about that. You need to ponder that. You need to think about that. See, um, and I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones kind of commenting on that. He says, the essence of worry, which is a lack of faith, the, ess- or, the essence of worry it is the absence of thinking. See, it's thinking that stirs up good thoughts about God. It's, it's thinking that stirs up faith. It's thinking that stirs up hope in God. It's thinking that does that. Maybe you could, I think this would be a good thing just to tuck into your back pocket. When Peter is talking about hope, he's not talking about something that just comes at you as you're sitting on the couch watching ESPN. That's not where hope comes. Hope comes when you apply your mind to thinking. It takes work to have hope. It takes work to have faith. That you've got to apply your mind to that. You've got to work hard at that. You can't be lazy and have good hope. You can't be lazy and have strong faith. It takes throwing everything into the pursuit of that. You thinking about that. When you wake up tomorrow morning, chances are the biggest thing on your mind is not going to be the hope that you have coming to you in Jesus. The biggest thing on your mind is going to be that critical word someone spoke to you. Oh no, I don't have a job. Oh no, how are we going to make the ends meet? That, that's going to be the biggest thought on your mind. This loss that I just experienced. So if you want to have hope in the midst of that, you've got to put your mind to, the, to action. You've got to start thinking. You've got to bring these things, prepare your mind to think about the glories of Jesus, how beautiful he is, how good he is. So he says, prepare your minds for action. And then one more, he says in verse 13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. If you want to have hope in God, you want to you know, live whole, holy, it takes you preparing your mind for action, and it takes you being sober-minded. Clear-headed. You're thinking rightly that you're seeing reality. And, and maybe on the other side, that you're not under the influence of the world. You haven't drunk these things in so much that you're, you're intoxicated by them. And listen, do you notice that it doesn't mention, mention alcohol here? Now, I just want to gently say this, that you can be drunk on a thousand different things. You can be drunk this morning on power. You can be drunk on comfort. You can be drunk on your own security. You can be drunk on the approval of man. You can be drunk in a million different ways, intoxicated, where you just can't see clearly. You can't think clearly because you've got all this fog of of these worldly things in your mind. And Peter's saying, if you want to live holy, you want your hope to be fixed on Jesus, you've got to start, you've got to think clearly. You can't come under the influence of all these other um, intoxicating drugs. Maybe you could think of it this way, that we're to shun and steer clear of anything that darkens or dulls the beauty of Christ to us. That is, that is such an important statement for you to hear. Peter's saying that you need to not come under the influence of anything that will, that will darken or dull how precious, how beautiful, 
how great Jesus is. And see, now here, here's what I've got to be careful of now. Um, I think a lot of guys at this point would start giving you a list of things to avoid. And I don't want to give you a list of things to avoid. Here's what I want to tell you, though. That, that you need to know those for you. I don't know those for you. I don't know what those things are that dull, dull and darken the beauty of Jesus to you. But you better know those. And you better steer clear of those. Or you're not going to be sober. There's no way you're going to set your hope on Jesus. There's no way you're going to live holy. So you better know what those things are that when you drink them in, it makes Jesus dull and, and not beautiful to you, not good to you, not satisfying to you. Okay, I'm going to end this morning with giving you a picture of holiness. With a picture. Holiness kind of in story form, if you will. I, I heard a guy um, work through 2 Samuel chapter 23. You just might write this down. You can read it later. 2 Samuel chapter 23 13 through 16, as a picture of holiness. As holiness in story form. So if, you, if you've read through the Old Testament a couple of times, you've probably read the story, and when I start talking about it, it'll probably kind of ring something deep down in you. But more than likely, it's three or four verses. You probably read over it without really even stopping to consider it. But, but here's what's happened. The, uh, the Philistines have, have come into to the people of Israel. They, they've come into Judah, and they've captured Bethlehem. And it's forced David to flee out of Bethlehem. And now he's on the run. He's in the wilderness. And it says he's got his mighty men around him. So they're in camp in the wilderness on the run. Philistines have taken over. And in the middle of that moment, kind of in his camp with his mighty men around him, he just kind of, he kind of murmurs something. The text says that he longingly said this. That he said, I, man, I just wish for water out of the well in Bethlehem. Just murmured it. He wasn't, he wasn't speaking a command. Right? He, he, wasn't, he wasn't asking for a volunteer. He was just murmuring something, almost as if it's under his breath. So he murmurs it, and then without a word, three of the mighty men, they belt on their sword, they run to, to Bethlehem, they fight their way into the well, they get their jugs, their containers, they dip water out of the well, they fight back through the, the Philistines, they run all the way back to David's camp, not drinking the water, but carrying the water. And they present it to David. And at the end of that, David pours it out and says, how dare I drink that water? How dare I drink that at the blood of these men that have risked their life for this? How dare I do that? And he pours it out. And in this, in this story, now just think about this. In this story, you're seeing holiness in story form. You, you see the essence of holiness. Here, here's how it plays out. It's total devotion. Here's when you know, okay, now, now listen again. No commands here. There was no, give me a volunteer, go get water. There was no commands. There was just a sigh. There was just this murmur, just this longing of, man, I would love to have water there. And, and here's how you know you're growing in holiness. You know you're growing in holiness when there is no difference between God's size and God's commands. Total devotion. No difference between God's commands in your life and God's size in your life. You know you're growing in holiness when God's size become your greatest desires. See, this is the issue of holiness. You see, this, when people talk about holiness, they always want to run to rules. Holiness always goes deeper to rules. It goes to the size of God. God is not after your external obedience. God is after your heart. He wants your desires to look like his desires. That, that's the issue. He wants his size, his longings to become your greatest desires in life. 
See, if, if, when you ask the question of money, if, if your question is, how much do I have to give? That is not a holy heart. A holy heart says this, how much is it possible for me to give? What, what would be possible for us? See, it's not the command. Holy people are not worried about the commands of God. That, that's where they start, but they're not primarily worried about those commands. They're worried about the size. What can I do here? If, if you're asking the question, okay, so what do I have to do to kind of get the service thing checked off? That is not a holy heart. That is after a rule, not the sigh of God. See, a holy heart, when, when holiness drops to the heart, here's what it looks like. How can I reorient all of my life around service? How much can I do? Do you see the difference in that? When holiness drops to the heart, total, complete devotion, God's sighs become our greatest desires. That's the essence of holiness. But then, then there's more. It portrays the object of holiness. When I first read the story, after like the first couple of times I read the story, I was like, man, David, you can't just pour that water out. They just risked their lives to bring you that water and you just pour it out like it's nothing, right? You can't do that. But, but in actuality, him pouring out that water is not him um, dissing his man. It's a, his men. It's actually him honoring his men. He's saying this, that sort of devotion, that, that sort of absolute allegiance, that, that does not go to any man. That, that is not meant for a person like me. The point of the story is to say that that, on, that sort of devotion, that only goes to God. Only God should have that sort of devotion. Only God should have that sort of central place and place of priority in your life that demands that sort of allegiance. Only God gets that. When something else gets that, that's a disordered desire. That's a disordered devotion. Only God gets in that central place that demands absolute allegiance of everything else. So, so you see the, the object of that holiness. And lastly, you see the, the reason for it or the motive of the holiness. Now, when you read the story, I think it's, it's somewhat easy to see Jesus in David, that the one that the absolute devotion is going to. But I just want to draw your mind to how Jesus is a true and he's a better mighty man. These three guys that belt, just the sigh, they belt on their sword and they run and get the water and bring it back. How Jesus is ultimately the mighty man who hears, listen to this, the deepest sigh of your heart for a savior. And he doesn't belt on a sword, but he, but he straps on human flesh. He doesn't run to Bethlehem, but he runs to a cross. And he doesn't bring back water from a well, but this living water that the Bible says will quench the deepest thirst of your soul. He fights through the enemy. He crosses enemy lines, fights through the enemy, and brings back that water to you. Because I, I want you to hear this. If you want to know how to grow in holiness, how holiness works, you have to set your mind on Jesus. The more we set our mind on Jesus' devotion to us, the more it causes us to be wholly devoted to God. To be holy gods, like to be holy, holy gods, completely devoted to God. To be holy gods springs from a vision of how God wholly gave himself to us in Jesus. This is why Peter says, set your mind, fix your hope on the grace that's coming to you. I love what Leonard Ravenhill says. He says, the greatest miracle that God can do today is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world 
and make that man holy and put him back into that unholy world and keep him holy in it. And I pray that would be us, amen? Let's pray. give you a minute to sit under that and for the spirit just to, to gently press that deep into you. If you're not a Christian in the room, you've never stepped across the line of faith, pushed your chips in with Jesus, you've never done that, Peter's saying, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. If you're an unbeliever, here's how I think that would apply to you today, is that this call in this passage is to set your hope on the grace that's already been brought to you. In the perfect life of Jesus, lived in place of your imperfect life, the undeserving death of Jesus, where he died in your place, buried in a tomb three days, rose on the third day, showing God's power over sin, Satan, and death, securing your salvation, to set your hope fully on that, to push your chips into that. God, I trust you with my life. God, I'm treasuring you above all things. The moment you do that, the Bible said he saves you. This will be your moment this morning for that. And for the Christians in the room, this is a call on your life to push your chips all into the table. No diversified hopes, one hope. Hope's bent around one person, Jesus. And this isn't a hobby. This isn't something we do on Sunday. This is everything. Life and death at stake here. Heaven and hell at stake here. So maybe there needs to be just some good repentance as we finish the morning. You on your face before God repenting of any except this things. Reaffirming to God, I am wholly yours. Maybe that just needs to happen today. Maybe you just need to bend down in your chair and say, God, spend my life, waste my life on you. It's at your disposal. I belong to you, God. It's yours. Maybe that needs to happen for you today. So God, will you drive this deep into us? God, will you By your grace and through the work of your spirit, God, will you make us a holy people? Absolute devotion. Putting sin to death. And God, but that's not happening. God, will you make us a repentant people today? It's in your good name we pray.